At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our September 1st. 2022 edition of Invest Talk, and I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you, trying to help you navigate through these volatile economic and market times. And the phone number, as always, does not change. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's always 88899 chart. Now I have a packed podcast for you today, and our main focus point is in regards to 401ks and the fact that despite recessionary fears. Most 401k investors haven't changed their portfolios, and I'm going to give you the pros and cons of of that, okay? Now, time permitting, I'll also dig into some other topics. Number one is the office glut, and uh, if you're looking at companies that whose business are related to office buildings, owning office buildings, renting office space, servicing commercial tenants, etc., then you'll want to understand the both short-term and long-term dynamics of office vacancies and those trends. Also, I want to touch on the the volatility in the markets and how much is that driven by vol targeting funds, meaning how much of this these market gyrations are due to funds having to increase or decrease their allocation to equities. So we're going to look at that data. And then lastly, we're going to touch on the deglobalization if we have time. I know we talked a little about that before, but we didn't have time for it. So hopefully we'll have time for it today. So all that will be discussed time permitting. And of course, we have voice bank questions as well. We're going to look at Paramount Global as well as Comcast. So I've got this all planned for this episode of Invest Talk, and of course, I'll take your calls live at eight 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 ninety nine chart. So let's take a look at the market. Take a look at the market today. We had the S and P that was up about twelve points. Certainly rebounded well off the lows, and not surprising. We hit pretty solid support uh, this re- this breakout area that uh, we, we saw in the month of uh, in early August, and now we've just simply returned that. Made a round trip of the of the rally starting actually it was starting late July and now we've uh, we've returned to there right around the 4000 mark on the S&P and if you look at the NYSE that was actually down about 29 points so modest down day there but once again closed well off the lows the big uh, news today was the strong dollar and the 10 year up about 13 basis points the highest close since let's see what's this date here July I hate it when it does that 
appreciate it when the pop-ups on your computer get in the way. Uh, June 21st, that was the last time we closed this high on the 10-year, and the yield curve continues to invert, and the odds of a 75 basis point hike in uh, this month, now that we're in September, uh, in just a few weeks by the Fed, is now up north of 75%, whereas yesterday it was uh, around 65%, so that was the surge, and you had economic data that came in today, and it was interesting that the market moved the way it did on this data because the the main number, which was the manufacturing PMI report, that was flat. So it was still in growth territory, 52.8. Anything above 50 is growth. And so month over month, it was flat, showing that the over that month, the, the economy didn't really deteriorate much. But what was what I'm still watching most importantly, and this is less important than Tuesday's figure, is that prices paid index, the ISM manufacturing prices paid index, that decelerated to 52.5. The last time we were this low was June of 2020. That was like in the midst of the lockdown, right? Or just coming out of the lockdowns. And basically, we're back to January 2020 levels. That was at 53.3. So based on just the manufacturing, which doesn't have nearly as strong a correlation as the services PMI prices paid index to CPI. Uh, this is telling you that CPI is likely to moderate pretty dramatically in the near term. Once again, you still have to hold your, your conclusion until Tuesday's report, which is that ISM services uh, report that's similar to the manufacturing side. Remember, two-thirds of the economy is services, and so that one uh, weighs more heavily and is less volatile than the manufacturing side. So uh, I actually thought this was very good news. Economy, okay, and inflation figures and expectations continuing to come down. Uh, and then if you look at the uh, even, even deeper and you look at delivery times and things like that, that all came in down pretty, pretty dramatically as well. Uh, and so... All of this made me a little shocked that the market was automatically pricing in a 75 basis point hike this month. So that was interesting. We'll see where it goes. But we did have a very nice, solid bounce off of support on the major indexes, which could lead to a short-term rally maybe into that report on Tuesday. Now let's go to Axel in Chino looking at DEA. Yeah, hi, uh, Justin. Thank you for taking my call. I was looking in the realty section. One is uh, uh, Easterly Government Properties, DEA, and the other one is SLG. It's the uh, Manhattan uh, properties, rental properties, uh, to try to stay safe in this environment with some some income and uh, maybe two to three years in this, in this area. I wanted to know your thoughts on these two. Okay, well... They're, they're very different. They're both REITs. But of course, DEA is the Easterly Government Properties. This is the REIT that acquires, develops, manages Class A commercial properties or at least to the U.S. government agencies. And so you would think that their business is steady and doing just fine. But uh, the price of this continues to plumb to new lows and earnings are starting to decelerate uh, dramatically. And they're actually supposed to be down funds from operation, excuse me, down 2% this year from last year. And it's not trading at a cheap price quite yet. So I'm, I, and the technicals are very poor and it's, it's not outperforming the overall index. You know, one of the first things I do with any stock that I'm looking at is I 
I run a ratio, okay? I take the, the for this, so I look at IYR, which is the iShares uh, real estate ETF, which is a, just a bunch of REITs. And I'm saying, I'm saying the near term or the medium term and the long term, does it tend to outperform the, the closest its sector? Or does it tend to underperform? Is it in, and is it underperforming in the near term or outperforming? And DEA is absolutely underperforming the, the the REIT sector. And if you look, go back to a weekly chart, it's pretty much been a downtrend since March of 2020. Okay, and so not a name that I want I want I want to get invested in. And then you look at SLG, which is a, a different type of REIT. This is SL Green, and you're right, they develop office properties in the New York metro area. But the problem is same kind of thing that they're underperforming and underperforming for good measure because the price of commercial real estate in big city centers like New York City are going to struggle as we continue to go to a work from home environment. And their business is struggling even more. Our funds from operation expect to be down 29% this year, 5% next year, absolutely not something I want to invest in. Once again, you're looking at 6% yield, 8.6% yield, above average yields, and poor business dynamics. Uh, whereas the IYR, yielding 2.3% means average REIT is yielding about 2.5%. Now, does that mean you can't find a REIT that's yielding 3, 3 3.5%, 4%? No, I think a lot of, there's, a, there's a lot out there that uh, are solid in that range. Uh, but when you're stretching towards triple to quadruple the average yield within the sector, you're investing in probably very high risk, poorly performing businesses in the near term. Now you could bet long-term that could turn around. Like for example, you could bet that SLG, that's just a short-term blip and long-term the commercial rents in New York metropolitan area are going to turn around. I wouldn't bet that, but you could bet that. And that could be a reason for that and, and you could find reasons uh, for for investing in something like that but neither of these are exciting look for the REITs not juicy dividends around the average REIT dividend yield I know that's not exciting but those are going to be the businesses that are going to tend to be more stable with assets that are more stable thanks for the call now we're heading into a break Steve and I are happy to play your recorded voice bank questions but we love taking live calls as well, just like Axel did. And our number never changes and it never closes as well. It's Invest Talk, 888 chart. Why do listener questions make Invest Talk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that Invest Talk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show and I've learned a whole lot. Hey guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor 888-99-CHART.
Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Now, my focus point today concerns the story behind this headline. Despite recession fears, most 401k investors haven't changed their portfolios. And you can look at that multiple ways that they're more disciplined. Okay. Only 5% of 401k and 403b investors have shifted out their asset allocation during the second quarter of this year. That's a little bit lower than the 5.3% who made that change in the first quarter. Now, the majority of investors that made a change shifted one way, and that is to a more conservative allocation. So it's that's not surprising. It typically happens in a down market. Uh, and it's also not surprising that most people didn't make a change because 81% of participants in 401k plans use the target dated funds. And target dated funds, they don't take into account the current market conditions. The vast majority of them are indexing, so they're just buying the broad indices, as well as they're on that glide path towards becoming more and more conservative over time as you get closer to that target date. Uh, And most people, set it and forget it approach is probably better than their own emotional performance chasing intuition to say that. And so I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but they also don't understand how the allocations work, how these targeted funds work. There's no sense of whether stocks or bonds are overvalued or undervalued, whether the economy is getting weaker or stronger. So that's why they tend to underperform, uh, especially in, in the long term compared to you doing the, uh, the asset allocation uh, yourself if you are educated. That unfortunately, the vast majority of 401k participants are not educated uh, well enough. They tend to utilize emotions. So it just depends on whether you're able to weed out the emotions or not. And that's what we try to get you to do here on this show. Now, one thing that most of these targeted funds do not have is exposure to things like commodities. You know, the sectors that do well in inflationary environments are commodities, basic materials, energy, real estate, financial services, and industrials. And unfortunately, the broad indices are underweight pretty much all of those sectors. And so that's why these targeted funds are going to continue to uh, underperform. But the good thing is that they, uh, these investors are not panicking. They're not going all the cash. Only 5% of them become more uh, conservative. Now, you could say, well... That means the ultimate low is not quite here yet, and that certainly could be true as well. Um, So I thought that was an interesting stat uh, in regards to 401ks and uh, the fact that targeted funds, while flawed, have helped people make less rash decisions. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they just don't understand how they work. Now, we've started the last month of the third quarter, and Labor Day is just around the corner, just uh, on Monday. So I am here and ready for your questions on Invest Talk at 888-99-CHART.
Invest Talk is here to help. And when you download the free Invest Talk podcasts, don't forget to rate and review. The phone lines are open 888 99Chart. Let's go to Anwar in Washington, D.C., looking at FCX and SCCO. Hey, Justin. Okay. Do you own them or looking to buy them? Um, I just want to. I own FCX, and I'm comparing between FCX and FCCO. And I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you do a lot of these, but a few months ago back in May, you guys helped me out with doing a portfolio review, and I really appreciated that, and it helped me to smooth out some of the rough edges of my portfolio, and it served me well since then. And I've been following your guidance, and I've been trying to move more and more of my portfolio into the value side of the market. And these, both of these stocks seem to me to fall in the large-cap value realm, um, they both are somewhat on the lower end of their PE ranges. From FCX, I can see that it has lower price-to-book and price-to-sales ratios, but it has a smaller and less stable dividend, and pretty much the inverse is true for SCCO. So I was wondering what your your guidance on how to evaluate between two similarly poised stocks is for these two, but just in, in general as well. Yeah, so FCX is certainly the larger of the two. If you look at their market cap, about $40 billion SCCO, which is Southern Copper, that's about 35 billion. So, you know, modestly smaller uh, in regards to its market cap, but uh, FCX does much bigger, uh, a, a bigger amount of, of, uh, of sales. But like you said, their margins are a lot smaller. And that's the, the issue for, for us is, you know, we own SCCO for, for clients and the reason we do is because of that better profitability uh, and long-term consistency of uh, better profitability. Uh, so that's why I would we we, we pick SCCO over Freeport, um, and you know it does pay a higher dividend. We don't necessarily think that dividend is going to grow in near term, um, but they have very modest debt uh, and consistency of cash flow. Now, the biggest, uh, I guess, risk you, sh- you would say with SCCO is they do have uh, their jurisdictions that they operate, like in Peru, they tend to be a little bit more volatile, uh, right? Because they're dealing with Central and South America, where Freeport does have that exposure as well, but they do have uh, some production here in North America as well as Indonesia. So they're, lo- they're a little bit more globally diversified. They also have some gold and silver deposits that they, that they mine. So a little more diversity there in their business. So Freeport would probably be the safer pick, um, but we like SCCO Southern Copper better on a risk versus reward uh, basis. So depends on how much risk you want to take, but both are solid copper plays, which copper demand is going to continue to grow as we put more money towards uh, electrifying our, our uh, transportation fleets with electric cars uh, and you know improving our demand, our, our increasing demand for electricity because of that is going to kick a lot of copper as well. So uh, we're, we're fans of copper long-term and just depends on what type of risk you want to take. SECO to us is a better risk versus reward. Thanks for the call. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. It's how you get through and ask your question on today's show. And let's touch a little bit on the office market. And this is a follow-up kind of to the question that Axel was asking in regards to, uh, I think it was SL Green earlier in the show. And 
What's interesting here is that the office glut has really been decades in the making. And basically US developers built way too many office towers and a lot of that had to do with federal tax breaks that go all the way back to the Reagan administration. In 1981, they changed the tax code so that those that invested in commercial real estate could depreciate their asset more quickly. So you could write it off faster and appreciate over a shorter period of time. And so it was more advantageous to invest in that than maybe uh, industrial, industrial or, or residential properties, which you'd have to depreciate over longer periods and you wouldn't, you wouldn't get that tax break in as large of one, at least in the, in the short term. Now, that's part of it, uh, but also that uh, low interest rates have inflated values and there, there's been a lot of unprofitable startups that created artificial demand for office uh, leases and landlords also failed to tear down old vacant buildings uh, to use for other things like in industrial uses as well as uh, residential. And so the country has way too many offices and too few companies that can or are willing to pay for the space, especially in the era of work from home. Now, this is not, this is somewhat of a unique problem to the U.S. and, and those other incentives like the tax breaks uh, probably point to it. 19% of U.S. office space was vacant as of the second quarter. That's compared to only 14% in the Asia Pacific region and 7% in Europe the Middle East and Africa. This is according to Jones Ling LaSalle. Now, a lot of these big cities rely on a bunch of people going into the city, working in cubicles, paying, you know, buying lunch at local shops and restaurants and cities like North, like New York and San Francisco kind of rely on it. And so this office glut has been building for a long, long time. This is part of the savings and loan debacle that happened in the late eighties. And vacancy rates slowly fell from the early 90s uh, and surged again after the dot-com bubble. Um, but you, you continue to have tax breaks and subsidies for big projects like New York's Hudson Yards, as well as the World Trade Center. And landlords have been inflating rents by giving tenants big cash gifts up front and free rent for high monthly rent once they do have to pay. And so it's created a mirage of a strong office market and the reality can be farther from the truth so when you start to dig into these reits that's why a lot of these office reits are yielding eight percent or so because of that high risk and i would stay away from them we're heading into a break so give me a call at 888-99-CHART ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. 
Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Now, in the next Invest Talk, the story behind this question. Could buying the dips hurt your portfolio in a bear market? Rallies within a bear market can often be mistaken for the beginning of a new bull run, only to reverse course and head lower. So that story is tomorrow that Steve will get to. But for now, we'll pivot to the Investalk Voice Bank for a call that came in earlier from Denmark. Hello, Investalk. This is Yannick from Denmark. I have a question about a stock called Paramount Global B. The ticker is P-A-R-A, Para. I'm seriously considering buying this stock for my um, girlfriend's pensions account. Often recently bought it. I, I find it undervalued. Just like to hear your opinion. Thank you for a good show. Bye. All right. This is Paramount Global. This is a combination of CBS and Viacom. So they have Showtime in addition to CBS Television, 28 local TV stations, and 50% ownership of CW. They also have a joint venture between CBS and Warner Media. And so they have uh, Nickelodeon, MTV, BET, Comedy Central, VH1, CMT, as well as Paramount. So a lot of, they have a lot of franchises, shall we say. Um, and they did very well during the pandemic as more and more people were staying home and watching TV and consuming content, but, and spending money on ads. But as that has shifted, 
Their earnings are expected to fall to an all-time low of $1.67 next year, down 26%. That's after a 35% drop in earnings this year to $2.27 from $3.50 last year. So if they're supposed to make $1.67 next year, it's a $23 stock. You're talking about over 15 times multiple for a shrinking business and declining spending on advertising. I just don't think it's cheap enough. So I don't like those earnings trends and the economic backdrop and the technicals look very, very poor. So I'm absolutely passing on Paramount until they can get their direct-to-consumer subscriber growth uh, be, to become the majority of their business, which it's growing nicely, but they're streaming uh, their losses on the uh, you know the cable side are just uh, driving more and more uh, more and more losses uh, or shrinking margins, excuse me, uh, of the overall business. So interesting name to keep an eye on to see when uh, that fully shifts, but that's not happening in the near term. Thanks for the call. That was Paramount, P-A-R-A. Now, when people take the time to leave in a Best Talk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for their courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. Mr. Scrooge says, FMS is selling at a very low price compared to normal valuation. The stock seems to have a protective moat. Is FMS good, a good stock to buy or a value trap? And what is the entry price? I was looking at this uh, the other day. I don't know if this, uh, I believe uh, another caller had emailed me uh, about this. And I was looking into it. It's a very interesting name. And this is one of the largest dialysis uh, providers in the world. They operate in over 50 countries. They are out of Germany, but they have about 4,100 different dialysis clinics. Now, clearly what's happening in Europe makes probably their business very, very expensive to run the dialysis machines. Uh, Cost of electricity there is is up tenfold in, in a year. Uh, so I think that's one of the big issues here that's likely to squeeze margins. Their margins have already been have already shrunk. Their operating margin now is about 8.6%, which is the lowest level it's basically ever been uh, outside of uh, one quarter in, in uh, 2000, where that was kind of an anomaly. But if you're talking about base level base rate uh, margins, it's very, very low. And earnings are expected to drop 18% this year, but have a rebound next year. Uh, but Estimates continue to decline. Revenue last quarter was down 3%, earnings down 13%. And once again, the analysts are downgrading consistently the expectations for those earnings. This is kind of the opposite of betting on natural gas prices. Uh, If Europe can solve their problems, uh, their energy crisis, then I think this will do well. Uh, So it's something that's on my radar now. I, I think it's an interesting name, and I do agree. Long term, the earnings power would make this very, very cheap at these levels. But in the near term, as long as the base power costs in Europe remain this elevated, then their business is going to m- struggle mightily. Uh, so I'm, I would have it on the watch list, but I would wait until you get some technical sign that this is reversing, and we're just not seeing that yet. So. Keep on your watch list, but be very, very patient. And I can't give you an entry price because there needs to be a resolution of the European energy crisis. And I just don't see that in the near term. So until I do see that, I'm passing on it. That was FMS, that was Fresenius Fresenius Medical, Fresenius Medical Care. There we go. Yep. I believe I said it correctly. Thanks for the call. 
888-99 chart, 888-992-4278. So I get through and ask your question. We have about 15 minutes left in the show. Now let's touch a bit on the wild swings in the market that we've experienced uh, this year. Now certainly a lot of that has to do with higher interest rates, shrinking multiples, especially for those high growth uh, stocks. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with trend following and option activity in the marketplace. Now, options are primarily an insurance market, but the insurance providers do not like to take directional risk. They want to keep things neutral. So whatever the market does, they're fine with. And these are the option dealers. And so when the stock, uh, w when the stocks go up, they have to hedge their risk by buying the underlying and vice versa. Stock goes down, they sell the underlying stock, and that becomes a, a vicious cycle both ways. And days around option expiration are when markets are most vulnerable to big economic events. And this is a perfect example, or August was a perfect example. Basically, the market peaked right around option expiration, right on August 19th, which was, yeah, it was the first kind of start of the down draft here over the past couple of weeks. And since the month op uh, the monthly option expiration on the S&P uh, has declined five out of seven sessions, falling about 5.8%, and the VIX has gone from 19.56 to 26.13. And historically, if it's below 20, that means the market's kind of calm and you typically get kind of an upside float. Uh, but that hasn't, uh, now that it's uh, up in the mid 20s, you are likely to see a more volatile market, at least in the near term. And this is this sparked also sparked the rally from June. So once you have the June expiration, that's when you started the rally the other way. So it can cut both ways. And about $110 billion came from buying from quantitative hedge funds that follow specific volatility targeting. They look back one month and three months. And then they see what's the average volatility. And based on that average volatility, they either buy or they sell. And so that's a big part of the market today. Uh, there are funds that do this. And a lot of this has to do with, uh, think of variable annuities. And uh, insurance companies are also part of this and, and uh, positioning themselves based on current market uh, volatility. And option trading has surged in popularity in recent years, so it makes it even more impactful, these option expiration and gamma uh, hedging that's happening. This has been a record year, or they're on track to smash records this year of option vol uh, volume with more than 40 million contracts changing hands on an average day here in 2022, okay? And uh, so, Month end is important, but quarter end uh, expiration is also very important as well. So for August, that was just a, a monthly expiration. The June one was a quarterly expiration, and that sparked a rally. Well, guess what? September is another quarterly expiration. So this next expiration date, which actually be two weeks from tomorrow, that will be an interesting one to see. Does that create a market turn and a shift in positioning? And once again, a shift in positioning to a more bullish dance can feed on itself. That's what happened in June and vice versa can happen. And that's what happened in August. So these trend following strategies uh, uh, are often a big reason for short-term movements in markets uh, that 
create some gamma hedging both sides, uh, the long side as well as the short side. So I wanted to give you a heads up on that and give you a little insight into the, the machinations that happen within the market on a kind of a, a daily and weekly basis. Now let's go to Art in Tucson. Let's talk about trailing stops. Hello, Justin. It's Art yes. in Tucson. Uh, love the show. Thanks for all you guys do out there for us. Uh, I had a basic question on trailing stops, and basically I want to know when it's appropriate to employ a trailing stop and if it's preferred to use a percentage or a point strategy for a trailing stop and why. And then uh, what is considered a tight stop? I hear that term thrown around, but it's rarely defined by anyone in a, in a terms of a percentage, at least. Okay. Um, thank you. Yeah, great question. And the answer is always going to be a percentage-wise because some stocks trade for, in the teens, other stocks trade for hundreds of dollars per share. So you never want to go by, you know, down a dollar, up a dollar, because that can mean a lot of different things depending on what stock you're talking about. And then you, ne you never want to use a hard and fast number of 8% or 10% because some stocks are very volatile or others are not so volatile. You know, Procter & Gamble, that's going to have low volatility. And so you probably want a smaller stop, 6%, 5%, something like that. Whereas say you're trading Tesla, which can move dramatically in a short period of time, uh, a 5% stop is going to get you stopped out very often. So a lot of it has to do with the historical volatility that you are that, that, that the stock tends to, to move with. And so uh, I, I don't like to use really those percentage numbers. I, I rather use the moving averages. So and as well as support levels. So stocks tend to move and find support uh, or resistance at certain moving averages. And so when the character of the stock ch changes, meaning let's say it's in an uptrend and it tends to find support at the 100 day, and then suddenly it found support at the 100 day for a short period of time and then failed. Well, that's, that means that stock is changing character, that maybe that long uptrend that it's been in is no longer in place or is being threatened. And that's when you want to think about exiting or uh, reducing your position. Uh, and so that's what I rather use uh, is, is a moving average. Uh, you could also use uh, other support areas like previous breakout uh, points. So a lot of times the stock will move up, it'll consolidate for a while, then it'll move up again. Well, it'll, it'll return back to that previous consolidation area and, and typically find support. That's kind of what you saw today in the markets. Uh, it hit its, its consolidation area from uh, early July and it, it found support. Now, if you start to break below that consolidation area, suddenly that kind of stair step higher where you get a rally and a pullback and a rally and a pullback, you know, that's a, that's a healthy way a stock typically will move and actually a very sustainable way a stock can move higher. Whereas, you know, if something moves quickly in one direction, oftentimes that, that, uh, that dissipates rapidly. Um, so it's more about the characteristics of the chart. And if those characteristics, those bullish or bearish characteristics, depending on if you're long or short, uh, start to change. Uh, so that's what I would use. I wouldn't use a hard and fast rule. I would become comfortable with charting and, uh, utilizing those tools in order to help you understand the current trends in the market as well as individual names. Thanks for the call. 
Well, we're rolling through the hottest summer days. And if you live here in Southern California, it is very hot. We've had some brush fires that closed the I freeway down and temperatures nearby in Santa Clarita currently at 105 degrees. Luckily, I'm in Laguna Beach, which much cooler, kind of low 80s, but still, you know, I can go jump in the ocean and, and or a pool, which is nice. But, you know, it's a time of year where volatility is also hotter and volatility means you need to pay attention and you need to be ready for both risks and rewards that are out there in the market. And no matter what stage of life you're in, whether you're in the accumulation phase, pre-retirement phase, or actually in retirement, you may need to hone in on a strategy that will work well in this environment. So I encourage you to reach out to myself or Steve Peasley at our company, KPP Financial, based in Irvine, California, just north of here. And this is where we will provide unbiased guidance, both on and off air, as well as practice parallel investing, which means we invest right alongside our clients. So I encourage you to take advantage of our free portfolio review assessment via telephone or go to meeting. And you, or you can send us a message through investtalk.com or call our office at 800-557-5461. Love to speak to you for just a short period of time, help you hone in on what you're doing right or wrong, and get your portfolio optimized. Now let's grab another iTunes review question. N. Bullard says, I'm curious your thoughts on DWAC, the SPAC taking Trump's Truth Social public. I own it at a higher price than it is now. Yeah, I mean, most SPACs are, are down over the past year or so, but this is one of those special ones that certainly made a lot of headlines and skyrocketed from 10 bucks all the way to a high of 173. Now we're down to $23 per share and continues to go lower. And frankly, you know, not to get political here, it doesn't seem like that has gotten much traction and their business hasn't produced any revenue. To me, this is a cash grab. More than anything, there's a lot of SPACs that are cash grabs, and this was just one of them. Uh, how much Trump got, I don't, I'm not sure, um, but I'm sure a lot of people in the mix uh, took advantage of his fervent fo following and people that love him. And a lot of people bought into that, uh, but that doesn't mean it's a good investment because it isn't. And clearly, you're seeing that I would sell it and move on. Now we're going into our final break. This is Invest Talk. I'm ready for your calls now at 888 chart. Your objective is to work hard, plan well, and achieve financial freedom, right? You're in luck because Justin Klein is here now, ready to take your finance and investment questions. Call 888-99-CHART. Hey, this is Jeff from Montana. I've been listening for a few years. I want to thank you guys for all that you do. I'm 25, just opened a Roth IRA, and already have my own portfolio on TD Ameritrade, made up of about 30 different stocks. I wanted to know what you guys would recommend for the Roth IRA, whether I should go the same route and use the same percentages in my current portfolio, or if I should go a different route and invest in ETFs such as mid-cap, small-cap, value, or the S&P 500. I also wanted to know if you guys would recommend contributing the max 6000 each year to the Roth. Looking forward to hearing your answer. Thanks. Well, if you're allowed to contribute 6000 to the Roth based on your income, I would probably do that. And... If you're already doing the work to build a portfolio of 30 different names that are well diversified and, and doing well, I don't see why that wouldn't apply to a Roth IRA, Roth IRA too. 
Now, if you want to create broader diversity and not have to do a whole lot of work, you know, you can use ETFs and just simply index. Uh, but if you're already doing the work, if you have confidence in yourself and your process, then I would go with individual names because I think uh, that's always better if you are know, know, if you know what you are doing. Thanks for the call. Now, lastly, let's touch on globalization and, you know, the collapse of communism in the 80s created the ideal conditions for the age of really hyper globalization. And now we are seeing another type of political change, and that is nationalism. And it's threatening the dense network of ties that have really been built up across the world uh, with global supply chains over the last three decades. And those that are not fans of globalization can be found on both sides of the aisle from your people on the nationalist right or the anti-capitalist left from environmentalists as well as intelligence agencies. And so there's, there's a lot of pushback to it, but near term, there hasn't been a huge push yet. Uh, and the numbers don't say it, the cross-border movement of capital and goods is still doing pretty well, still below the peak from 08, but still doing pretty well. And one conclusion could be that it's difficult to disentangle these supply chains. I, I know this firsthand, a company that I invested in, as well as uh, the founder is one of my, my best friends. And he's talked about it. He has uh, products that are put together in China, but are part of a global supply chain. Certain things are made in Korea or Japan or other other parts of, uh, of of Europe as well. So they bring all of these parts together and assemble them in China. And he is thinking about moving production to other parts of the world, um, but he says it's difficult and it in some ways and it, it it's more costly. Uh, but they're starting to figure it out, and I think that's really the trend here is that there's industrial policy and protectionism that is no longer an, a dirty word here in the US. And you can see that with the tariffs. Trump put to, started the trade war and Biden did nothing to roll it back pretty much. And so it's a bipartisan consensus that pushing for policies to reduce dependence on other countries to produce key parts such as uh, semiconductors. And even the Chinese themselves, they're the ones that kind of pushed this well before we even thought about it, which was China 2025. This was announced in 2015. And this talked about all the things that they're doing, their, their economic warfare on us and, and the rest of the world. And so this is a trend that we're just starting to get on, the train that we're just starting to get on. So when you're looking at companies that are heavily reliant on these broader supply chains, how will they localize their supply chains? Is it going to be difficult? Is it going to be hard? How much will their cost increase when these things happen? Uh, I think it's going to take some time. I think it's going to be slow moving deglobalization. It's going to move a lot slower than the globalization trend, which you know, as soon as it kind of picked up steam once uh, China entered the WTO, it moved very fast and in a big, big way. I think it's going to be a slow trickle, but it's also going to uh, drive inflation structurally higher over the longer term. Thanks for the call. Oh, call.
thanks for being here. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. Now crossing the 44.8 million mark thanks to you. You can get your Invest Talk podcast anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and be sure to rate and review on iTunes. And if you leave a message with your review, we will prioritize your answer. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.